Our Father, we come in the name of Jesus with thankful hearts that we are members of your kingdom, that we have been called to follow you, and that you have given to us the word of God to direct our thoughts, to guide us in our way. Father, I thank you for the Spirit of God who is our teacher, and we trust him to illumine our minds and hearts today and cause the word to be living, powerful and quick, uh, moving into the very core of our being and, and transforming us from the inside out. Father, I pray that as a result we will be more carved into the image of Christ and able to reflect the glory of Christ to those that we encounter each day. Lord, I thank you for your good provision for this week which has been set aside for a time of thanksgiving. But Lord, we trust that every day will be a day of thanksgiving for us who know you as Savior. We ask that you will bless us this hour, that you will guide our thoughts and our, and our discussion of this passage. And Father, I ask that throughout our Sunday school today, your spirit will be at work accomplishing your great, great plan and purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. 32nd chapter of Numbers. We began this chapter last week, but I'd like to begin reading with verse 1 again and read through the first 15 verses for the beginning passage today. Numbers 32, beginning at verse 1. Now the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an exceeding large number of livestock. So when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that it was indeed a place suitable for livestock, the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Adaroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliala, Sebaim, Nabo, and Baon, the land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel, is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. But Moses said to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? Now why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when they sent them to Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshcol and saw the land, they discouraged the sons of Israel, so they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger burned in that day, and he swore, saying, None of the men who came up from Egypt from twenty years old and upward shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. For they did not follow me fully, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have followed the Lord fully. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness forty years, until the entire generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. Now behold, you have risen up in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to add still more to the burning anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once more abandon them to the wilderness, and you will destroy all these people. We see that as they have come to the plain of Moab, at the encampment across which they could see the land of Canaan, the east side of the Jordan, directly opposite the city of Jericho, the people were camped there for weeks, for months, the exact length of time we don't know, but they were there for a while 
before they entered the land, poised for the conquest. In the process, though, you, we just read before in the previous chapter that they had brought great destruction on the Amalekites. And in the process, they had acquired the Midianites, I'm sorry, and they had acquired their great uh, flocks and herds. And this was added to the flocks and herds that Reuben and Gad, and of course all the tribes had. But apparently, from the passage we have here, the Reubenites and the Gadites had larger flocks than many of the other tribes had. And so now the situation had gotten almost beyond control, as they saw it anyway. And the idea of, of leaving all these flocks and herds behind or trying to push them across the Jordan as part of the conquest just didn't appeal to them at all. And so they have come up with a bright idea. Who knows who had the first idea? Who came up and said, by the way, why don't we just settle here? We, we don't know who had that first idea. But we know that the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had the leadership, had come to this conclusion, and they came before Moses with this request. We would like to settle here in Transjordan, in the land that had already been conquered. And... You know, then you can go on across and conquer the rest of the land. And we talked last week a little bit about what some of the reasons might have been in addition to the fact stated here that they simply had more livestock than they knew what to do with. It seems quite clear from verse 6 that Moses, and, and from the entire passage from 6 through verse 15, that Moses assumed the worst motives in Reuben and Gad in their request here. He accuses them of discouraging all the rest of Israel because as the word would get out and all of Israel would hear that two tribes are wanting to stay here and that the rest of us can go across and that they're withdrawing their armies in, so to speak, from the conquest, this would cause the others to think, well, I mean, that's that many less soldiers to fight. Uh, maybe this isn't such a good idea. And Moses is really upset at these men because they are implying in Moses' opinion, they're implying that since they had their inheritance now, if they were granted Transjordan, they wouldn't have to participate in the conquest of Canaan. And the other tribes could do it, and they could just sit here uh, in this part of the land in security. Now, had that been their thinking, it would have been extremely selfish on their part. And I'm not saying that wasn't their thinking, but I think there are some evidences that maybe they thought otherwise. It was selfish because who had conquered Transjordan? Had just the Reubenites and the Gadites tra conquered Transjordan? No, the entire nation of Israel had cooperated in the conquest of Transjordan. So why should they receive the fruit of what the whole nation did and then let the rest of the nation take care of the remaining portion to be conquered while they sat at ease, having had help to conquer their area but not helping the rest conquer their portion? This was what Moses was thinking. And so Moses launched into a brief sermon, as we read it there in uh, verses 7 through 15, reminding them of the reason for the wilderness wandering. Why was it we spent 40 years wandering around out in that wilderness there? Was it because we didn't know what else to do with ourselves? No, no, no. We sat at Kadesh Barnea. We had spied out the land, and yet some had returned and said, yeah, it's a great land, but we can't conquer it because the city walls are high and there are giants in the land. And they discouraged the people so that they refused to enter the land. And so God said, turn around and head out into the wilderness, and that's where you're going to be for the next 39 years until the whole generation dies off from 20 years old and upward. And Moses rehearses all of this to these leaders of Reuben and Gad. And he reminds them, why is it 
folks that the only people in this camp that are over 60 are me, Moses, and Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else is under 60. Why is that? And of course, that was, of course, proof that God had judged the people. So this is a litany of experience that Moses is rehearsing before the tribal leaders of Reuben and Gad. One commentator on this passage puts it this way, worship is not just responding to grace. It is also remembering past disaster and learning to avoid it in the present. You think about that and you think of how much of scripture is rehearsing past disaster. You read through the Old Testament and how many Psalms, for example, rehearse Israel's tragedies? How many times are there references in the, in the prophets back to Israel's failures? Because that's part of worship. Remembering where we have been and knowing where we should go and, and learning from the past how to avoid failure in the future. This is part of worship because so often the scripture tells us, God says, I prefer obedience to sacrifice. Your sacrifices are meaningless to me if you are not obedient. This is say, stated over and over again by the Lord in Scripture. Well, Moses viewed the request of these tribes as very similar in motivation to those who refused to enter the land of Canaan from Kadesh Barnea 39 years before. So you can understand why he was a bit upset here. And Moses did not look at them as have, being really honest in their presentation. And he warns them that if this is really your motivation, if your motivation is because you want to stay here and you don't want to have to expose yourself to the, to the dangers of the, of the conquest, then you will be responsible for discouraging this people from entering Canaan and you will be responsible for the destruction of Israel by God. That's pretty heavy. You know, it's one thing to be responsible for your own destruction but to be responsible for the destruction of others too. Did Moses have the gift of discernment here so that he turned Reuben and Gad from their folly? Possibly, maybe even probably. Or was he just demonstrating his humanness and jumping to conclusions here, assuming that that was their motivation when really their motivation was to do what they will explain in later past parts of the passage here and what they will actually do in the end, which was, let us settle here, get all secured right here, and then we will go with you on the conquest. That's what they will protest they will do. But was that really their motivation to begin with? <coughs> Moses didn't think so. And of course, Moses was on the spot. I mean, he was there at the time, and he wrote this book. So it could be that he knows, knew something that we can't really tell from this passage. Whatever was the true answer to the questions the next passage reports that the right actions followed, and that's what really counts. Let's look, beginning at verse 16 through verse 20. Numbers 32, 16. Then they came near to him and said, We will build here sheepfolds for our livestock and cities for our little ones. But we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the sons of Israel until we have brought them to their place while our little ones live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every one of the sons of Israel has possessed his inheritance. For we will not have an inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has fallen to us on this side of the Jordan toward the east. 
Were they taken aback by Moses' vehement response and by his lecture which he gave them? Or were they corrected by his words? I mean, were they hit in the face with something that was a false accusation? Or were they set, set aright by Moses' words? Well, whatever the case may be, the leaders of Reuben and Gad came to Moses to explain their plans. Were they their original plans? Or were they, are they now the plans that they have reformulated after Moses' response? They asked for a little time. Give us some time in the land here to build sheepfolds and towns, to make our flocks and our families secure. And then we will be willing to cross the Jordan and to be the front-line troops, to be on the front edge of the attack. Let me read a passage from Joshua chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Joshua 4, 12 and 13. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over in battle array before the sons of Israel, just as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 equipped for war crossed for battle before the Lord into the desert plains of Jericho. That's the report of what happened. When the attack was actually launched, there they were, 40,000 strong, to be a part of the invasion of the land. Whatever was their original thinking here, whatever was their corrected thinking, their action was to fulfill what they had promised to do. 40,000 men were there. And in other passages we'll read later, we're going to discover those 40,000 men stayed with them throughout the conquest, throughout the conquest. And believe me, the conquest was not an overnight thing. It was a multi-year event. So these men were committed to do this. But first of all, they needed to build sheepfolds and they needed to build cities for their families. Now the word cities needs to be understood within the context of the time. It doesn't mean cities like we think of cities today. It meant villages and small towns. Generally speaking, when the word city is used, it meant there was a wall around it, a defensive wall. And some of these cities had had defensive walls. The Israelites had broken some of them down in order to capture the cities. So certainly what they're asking for here is time to repair those walls, maybe to extend those walls, to rebuild whatever structures were damaged in the conquest, and then to build sheepfolds, probably many more than existed before because of the huge flocks which they had. Now sheepfolds were not particularly difficult or long-term structures, just low-walled, uh, usually open circular affairs, maybe rectangular affairs, that would be built in order to hem the sheep in at night and for the shepherd to have some degree of protection for the flock during the night. Maybe you uh, have gone to sleep at night watching sheep jump over fences, but sheep aren't very good jumpers from what I understand. (laughs) And so it doesn't take very high wall to keep the sheep in, penned up for the night with some measure of uh, protection. And so these were to be built. Now, considering the manpower available, this wouldn't have been a terribly difficult or time-consuming task. Oh, certainly it would have taken a few, a few weeks, at least maybe a few months, but it wouldn't have taken an endless amount of time because we're dealing with a large number of people here. Because if we go back, and we won't turn back to Numbers chapter 26, I'll just remind you of what it says there. It tells us that in the tribe of Reuben, there were 44,000 men from age 20 and up. And for the tribe of Gad, there were 40,000 men, nearly, of age 20 and up. 
That's a lot of manpower. That's 84,000 men that can set to work rebuilding walls, rebuilding town, uh, structures, and building sheepfold. On top of that, you can use, of course, many of the women who would be willing to work, and then all of the, the boys, even from 12 to 19, many of them would be able to work like a man. And, and so you have a huge force, you know, well over 100,000, considering especially the fact that the half a tribe of Manasseh will be involved. It hasn't even been brought into the picture here yet with another 26,000 men. So you're probably looking at 120,000 men or people at least available for, for construction. Well, you could do a lot of uh, moving in uh, that period of time. The Great Pyramid at Giza, the Pyramid of Khufu, Cheops as it's called, which was at its height uh, 480 feet high and 750 feet on each side in a, in a nearly perfect rectangle. It is estimated it took 20 years to build that structure with a steady force of maybe 4,000 and an expanded force during the season when nobody had to be harvesting or planting of maybe 100,000. And you think of that structure, I mean, there's an, a mammoth amount of material that went into that. <laughs> Considering the walls of these little towns and the little sheepfolds, it would have been a piece of cake for them to um, erect those in a relatively short period of time. The Reubenites and Gadites promised that they would stay with the Israelite army in the conquest until the job was done, until the conquest was complete, and that every tribe was settled in its inheritance. They would not go home and enjoy the fruit of what they were hoping that they would get now and that they would build now until all of the other tribes were secure and able to know this was their land and begin their own construction of their sheepfolds and reconstruction of cities and so forth. The statement that's given in verse 19 where it says, for we will not have, our, not have an inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has fallen to us on this side of the Jordan towards the east. I think this statement was made to, to Moses to imply that if they get their inheritance in Transjordan, the nine and a half other tribes would only have to divide Canaan amongst nine and a half instead of twelve, which would give them a lot more space per tribe on the west side of the Jordan. So it would be to their advantage to have two and a half tribes settle on the east side. It would be less crowded on the west side of the Jordan. Now whether this was the statement was made as simply a matter of fact or was being made as sort of a magnanimous act on our part by staying over here. Look what we're giving you over there. You know, you can't really tell uh, from the passage. But certainly, it was hoped that the nine and a half tribes would appreciate the fact that they would be less crowded if two and a half tribes were resident east of the Jordan. Reading at verse 20, So Moses said to them, If you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for war, and all of your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven his enemies out from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord. Then afterward you shall return and be free of obligation toward the Lord and toward Israel, and this land shall be yours for a possession before the Lord. But if you do not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Build yourselves cities for your little ones and sheepfolds for your sheep, and do what you have promised. And the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben spoke to Moses, saying, Your servants will do just as my Lord commands. 
Our little ones, our wives, our, our livestock, and all our cattle shall remain there in the cities of Gilead, while your servants, everyone who is armed for war, will cross over in the presence of the Lord to battle, just as my Lord says. It's obvious Moses isn't totally convinced yet. He says, if you do what you say, then this will be the result. He still is questioning the sincerity of the Gadites and Ruminites. Now think about this. Think of the experience Moses had with Israel for 40 years. Now, if you were Moses, wouldn't you be a little um, skeptical here about promises made by the people? Because how many times did we keep reading, and Israel did that which was evil in sight of the Lord, you know, and Israel didn't do what God said to do. I mean, it got pretty monotonous there for a while, didn't it? And, and so if you were Moses, I mean, he's human. He, he's going to view these people and he's going to say, yeah, okay, uh, let's see you put your money where your mouth is, so to speak. Um, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, is what he's implying here. He told them that if they did exactly what they said they would do, then they would be free from any further obligation to help Israel on the west side of the Jordan once they were already in the land and settle in the land and everything was secure, they could come back to their side and live there and they had no further obligation on the other side of the Jordan. And on top of that, they would be confirmed in their possession of Transjordan. Moses' emphasis was not just that they had to take part in the invasion, but the scripture says that they had to arm themselves before the Lord for war. That is, they had to participate in a holy war ordained and empowered by God for the fulfillment of His divine plan. This wasn't just, well, you know, we're going to go to war, so we're going to need your help type thing. This was God's explicit plan for all of Israel. It was a holy war. It was a war that God had proclaimed and God would empower. Therefore, they had to go into this battle with faith. They couldn't go in half-hearted. They couldn't go in as the Laodicean church is described in the third chapter of Revelation, you know, lukewarm, where God says, I wish you were hot, I wish you were cold, because you're in the middle, Blech. They can't enter into the situation that way. They had to go with the full armor of God, as we read about it in Ephesians, prepared to do the will of the Lord, because this was God's will for Israel. And they had to be a full participant in it, by faith as well as by action. And that's what the Christian life's all about, isn't it? Faith and action. Faith and action. Paul and James. <laughs> James and Paul. Either way, you have to have faith, but that faith has to be demonstrated by your works. No works, no faith. And that's what he's saying here to these people. Moses warned that if they reneged on their promise at any point before the, the conquest was complete, they would be sinning against God. And then he makes that statement that we so often quote, totally out of context, but I don't think wrongly so, be sure your sin will find you out. If you stop at any point before completion, you won't get away with it. You can't go back to your homes and say, well, we, we, you know, we, we did what we should. We're back here now. This is our land. They can just finish it up over there. God will bring retribution upon you for failing to complete the task because your sin will find you out. 
Your sin will be self-revealing. And even though that's, that phrase comes in this context, I think we're talking about a genuine principle of God. And that is, sin which is practiced in the lives of believers will be self-revealing. And how many pastors and preachers do you know who have, who have been pitched down from their pinnacle of power because sin had found them out? Because of their arrogance and their lust and whatever it was, they were pitched down from their pinnacle because their sin had found them out. You see, God is the one who sees all. You and I can be hoodwinked. You, know, you and I can be uh, convinced that somebody is really, really good and, and you don't see what God sees, but God sees the heart. And God would see their hearts and they would not escape divine retribution. And what Moses is implying here is, you guys are building your sheepfolds, okay? And you're building your walled cities, okay? You want your family to be secure. You want your livestock to be secure. But if you don't fulfill your end of the bargain, that security is down the tubes because God will remove it. God will remove your protection and your sheep will be lost. Your children will be lost. Your wives will be lost. No matter how many sheepfolds you have or how many walled cities you have, it will be lost because God will allow it to be so. They must keep their covenant with God. God is a covenant-keeping God. He expects the people to respond in kind. The sin of unbelief and of following human rules and exalting them over God's rules would be ultimately the destruction of Israel. If you remember the history of Israel, you know that in 721 B.C., the city of Samaria fell to the Assyrians and the ten tribes of Israel were carried off into captivity and the whole Samaritan issue began to develop. A few, of course, of every tribe filtered south into Judah so that the twelve tribes were still represented by some. But m many of the other ten tribes in the north were, were carried off never, never to return. And as you follow the history down from that point, and you discover, of course, the Babylonian captivity which occurs from which many never return, and, and then you come down to the uh, period of the Romans, and you come to the year 70 when Jerusalem is destroyed, and the beginning of the final scattering occurs, and then you go to the end of the Bar Kokhba revolt in, in the middle 130s AD, and the land is basically scourged of Jews, at least Jerusalem is, and Jerusalem is renamed Aelia Capitolina, and on the Temple Mount is built a temple to the worship of the Capitoline Triad of Rome. That's what happens when people do not fulfill their covenant with the Lord. He removes their security, and he allows the pagans in, because the land is only holy as the holy people of God live in it. The land is not holy in and of itself. There's nothing more holy about the dirt in Palestine than the dirt right outside here. And so it would be. Moses' warning would echo down through the centuries. Unfortunately, it would fall in deaf ears. And even Jesus himself would say, you make the, the rulings of men to be superior to the rulings of God. You listen to the counsel of rabbis and forget the plain teaching of the prophets. Moses said then, after all of those nice warnings, go ahead, build your villages, build your walls, build your sheepfolds, and then do 
what you've promised for Israel. As you read the, that particular passage that we read from 20 to 27, you'll find that the wording is virtually a verbal contract that had been made between the leaders of Reuben and Gad and God, Moses being God's representative. And in the contract, they had to spell out exactly what they were going to do. And then God spelled out exactly through Moses what he would do. In exchange for Transjordan, the security of their families and the security of their possessions, they would cross over Jordan in the power of Yahweh and aid their brothers in securing the land for their families and for their possessions. What right would you have, Reubenites and Gadites, to sit be securely behind your walls and to know that your brothers on the other side have not gained that security. Let's go on with verse 20. By the way, uh, there's a lot, of, a lot that you can draw out of that in terms of extension. It, you know, you think today of what right does the church in America have to sit in security and wealth while the church around the world in so many places is being devastated and in poverty. You know, it's, it's hard for us as individuals. It's sort of like, you know, you were told when you were a kid, maybe you weren't, but some people were told when they were a kid that they had to clean up their plate because they're starving people in China. And you, you probably came to the realization that whether or not you cleaned up your plate probably wouldn't relieve anybody over in China one way or the other. Certainly if you cleaned it up, there's no likelihood that that's going to help anybody in China for sure. But there are ways, there are ways by which you and I can help the church around the world. And of course, we just recently had, last Sunday, uh, wasn't it last Sunday or the Sunday before anyway, the uh, prayer for the persecuted church. And prayer is the greatest single tool that we have to minister security and healing and help to the bride of Christ around the world. Unfortunately, much of the Church of America is not committed to much prayer, either corporately or individually. And probably that's an area that we all need to work on and, of course, there are probably other ways. Uh, many ways are being seen in, in the growth of short-term missions now, where numerous groups are sent out to minister, maybe only in a short term, but in a very real way, to third world peoples and to aid churches in, in other areas. And then, of course, supporting the missionary effort of the Alliance and others is also a major way by which uh, we can take part in aiding our brothers and sisters, securing uh, their portion of the inheritance, we might say. Verse 28, So Moses gave command concerning them to Eleazar the priest, and to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the father's households of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And Moses said to them, If the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben, everyone who is armed for battle, will cross with you over the Jordan in the presence of the Lord, and the land will be subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession. But if they will not cross over with you armed, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben answered, saying, As the Lord has said to your servants, so we will do. We ourselves will cross over armed in the presence of the Lord into the land of Canaan, and the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us across the Jordan." Moses was not going to be able to cross the Jordan. Moses was going to die on the slopes of Mount Nebo before the conquest began. And so he had to transfer oversight of this treaty to someone else. 
And so he had to transfer it to the leadership that was to be, and that was Joshua, who would be his political uh, military successor, and to Eliezer, who would be the spiritual successor to Moses. And so this transfer had to take place to include the con contract that was verbally created. They, those two men, would be responsible to see to it that Gad and Reuben did as they had promised, that they fulfilled their end of the bargain. So in turn, God could then fulfill his end of the bargain because just saying, they could have said, well, just try to get us out of the land. We're going to stay here and you just try to do anything about it. Oh, that wouldn't have done them any good because they were the people of God and God can displace whom he wants to displace any way he chooses to do it. And their security would have been insecurity had they failed to carry out their end of the bargain. But if they do their part and God confirms them in the land, then they can rest in the security of his blessing and his protection. Their walls would have meaning. It's like the walls of Jericho. What good were the walls of Jericho to the people inside Jericho? God just said, be flat, and they were flat. So the walls of Israel were likewise no defense if God wasn't their primary defense. And that's where stories like the story of Hezekiah, such a wonderful story, where Sennacherib came in with 185,000. I mean, that's an immense army for that day. And he came up against the little city of Jerusalem. Now, you may have some kind of a childhood vision of what Jerusalem was like, but Jerusalem was a tiny place. You go over to old, ci old city Jerusalem today, it's still a tiny place. You know, it's surrounded by modern Jerusalem. And it's just a small little area. Well, in, in the days of Hezekiah, it was even smaller than it is today. How would a city like that withstand 185,000 men? It is said that, 10, that for every 10 attackers against a walled city, one armed soldier inside can defend. But Sennacherib said to Hezekiah, if you can put 2,000 men on horseback, I'll give you the 2,000 horses. Implying he didn't even have 2,000 men to defend the city. And, and he had 185,000 men. No city had withstood the armies of Sennacherib. And yet the little old walls of Jerusalem, which aren't the walls, by the way, which you see over there today, because the walls which you see today are largely those that were built by Suleiman the Magnificent in the 16th century. The walls were not as big as they are and as strong as they are today. And, and so it would not have been difficult for Sennacherib to have taken the city. But he couldn't take the city because God said he couldn't. It could have been an unwalled town because God said not a single arrow will fly over the wall. God was their defense and they were unbeatable. But when God is not their defense, nothing could defend them. Just in case Reuben and Gad failed to do what they promised, Moses included a proviso here. He said, don't confirm them in Transjordan and give them territory in Canaan. <laughs> As if that were some kind of a punishment, I suppose. It would have been because it proved that they had failed to do what God had ordained them to do. But it didn't leave them out in the cold. They still would be part of the nation and, and, and they would be in Canaan, but everything would be more crowded, of course, than before. I believe that this transfer of oversight of the contract from Moses to Joshua and to Eliezer was a formal ceremony. I think that everybody stood there and went through this and that it was done in a formal way, particularly as you discover 
uh, how the Reubenites and Gadites reaffirmed their promise again, as we read it there in verses 31 and 32, where they said, As the Lord has said to your servants, so we will do. Solemn promise before God, before the leadership of all the land, and before Moses and Joshua and Eliezer, we will do it. They, they couldn't have made a, a more sincere promise. There's nothing they could have done to make it more genuine in light of the situation. Now let me read from the 22nd chapter of Joshua. The victory has been won. The land has been conquered. Joshua 22.1 Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have listened to my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. Now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. Therefore, turn now and go to your tents, to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> well, had they done what Joshua exhorted them to do, they would have. They would have lived happily ever after in the security of God's provision and God's protection. But isn't it, isn't it uplifting to read a passage where it says, and they did everything that God said for them to do? We get so tired of reading about the fact that they failed. But of course, that's life, isn't it? You know, there are days in which we can say, oh Lord, I've done what you have told me to do. And other days when we say, oh, I got mud on my face again, Lord. Not telling him anything, but that's what Israel was about. And scripture is, all scripture is there for our edification, including uh, these passages in Numbers. Well, let's read on the next uh, passage there in Numbers 32. These will be the last verses in the chapter. So Moses gave to them, to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Reuben, and to the half-tribe of Joseph's son Manasseh, the kingdom of Sion, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the land with its cities, with their territories, the cities of the surrounding land. And the sons of Gad built Dibon, Adaroth, and Arar, and Atroth, Shophan, and Jazer, and Jogbeha, verse 36, and Beth Nimrah, and Beth Haran, as fortified cities, and sheepfolds for the sheep. The sons of Reuben built Heshbon, and Eliala, and Karathaim, and Nebo, and Baalmeon, their names being changed, and Sibma. And they gave other, city, other names to the cities which they built. And the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and took it and dispossessed the Amorites who were in it. So Moses gave Gilead to Machir, the son of Manasseh, and he lived in it. And Jer, the son of Manasseh, went and took its towns and called them Havath Jer. And Nobah went and took Kenneth and its villages and called it Nobah after his own name. Assuming that the Israelites, Gad and Reuben and half-tribe of Manasseh, 
will do what they have promised Moses granted Transjordan to them. However, this was a preliminary deed that would allow them to go ahead and develop the land. Full ownership, however, would only come after they have fulfilled the contract to its ultimate. Then they would be able to possess the land with the blessing of God. It's interesting that this is the first passage in which we find the half-tribe of Manasseh now mentioned. It isn't just Reuben and Gad. It's what it's been all along. Reuben and Gad, Reuben and Gad, Reuben and Gad. But now we get half-tribe of Manasseh. And the question is, how did this happen? And the answer is, we don't know. <laughs> is it that Reuben and Gad were mentioned and the half-tribe of Manasseh was just left out of the earlier discussions, but they were there? Or is it more likely, I think, that the half-tribe of Manasseh said, hmm, Reuben and Gad have been very successful in getting this land, and there's still some empty land up to the north. How about we join this program here, and we buy into this contract, and let's see if we can't get our land now too. And that's exactly what happens. We find that half-tribe of Manasseh is now joined together with Reuben and Gad to gain the land. Now, if you can picture the land, put up your little computer screen and, and draw Israel on there. You should all have Israel on your mind all the time. That is, you should be able to call it up anytime. If you look at Canaan, of course, you have the Mediterranean. I'll turn your way. You have the Mediterranean over here, the Sea of Galilee up here, and the Dead Sea down here. Well, east of the Jordan, <clears throat> we're, we're beginning with the Reuben tribe being located uh, down where the Arnon flows into the Dead Sea. That's about halfway up the east side of the Dead Sea. Okay, that's where Reuben border comes down to there. Okay. From there, their land goes up to about the head of the Dead Sea. Then from the head of the Dead Sea to the Jabbok, which is halfway, comes in about halfway up the Jordan River, that will be the tribe of Gad. And then north of the Jabbok to the Yarmuk, which flows into the Jordan just south of the Sea of Galilee, will be for the half-tribe of Manasseh. So that is basically the entire western portion of the modern country of Jordan. It's the most habitable part of, habitable part of that country. That was to be their possession. Now, I think the last thing I will do today is read from Joshua chapter 12. Joshua chapter 12 tells you exactly what they got. Joshua 12, beginning at verse 1. Now these are the kings of the land whom the sons of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise from the valley of the Arnon as far as Mount Hermon and all the Arabah to the east. The Sion uh, king of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon and ruled from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, both the middle of the valley and half of Gilead, even as far as the brook Jabbok, the border of the sons of Ammon. The sons of Ammon border was to the east. And the Arabah as far as the Sea of Kinneroth, which is the Sea of Galilee, toward the east, and as far as the Sea of the Arabah, even the Salt Sea, which we call the Dead Sea, towards eastward towards Beth Jeshemash, Math, and on the south at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. And the territory of Og, uh, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, who lived at Ashtaroth and Edri, and ruled over Mount Hermon and Salakah, 
and all Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Machathites. You read on later in, in the Kings and you find more about the Geshurites and the Machathites. Half of Gilead, as far as the border of Sion, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the sons of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave it to the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh for a possession. So everything from the slopes of Mount Hermon south to the Arnon, that's an area of about 2,500 square miles. That will be approximately one-third the size of the territory that Israel will occupy on the other side of the Jordan. So you figure two and a half tribes get a territory that's approximately equal to one-third of what the other nine have. So it's fairly evenly balanced, not quite, but considering the fact that their land was pretty dry, the balance was pretty good. So this would be their land of occupation, and the others would, of course, occupy the rest. We'll talk next week uh, as we begin class about these villages and uh, some of their name changes and why their names were changed, and then we'll move on to chapter 33.